All right, welcome everybody to the very first episode of the PT edition of the Resource Roadmap Show. This is something new we're doing with Therapy Insights, and this is an offering that's based on years of requests from members uh, for us to provide more instruction and context on how to use our resources. So we're super excited to be doing this. We're going to be learning as we go, and we welcome any and all feedback as you're listening and watching this. If there's something that we can do better to serve your needs, just let us know. You can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. Um, if you are subscribed to the printables feature of the Access Pass, you're going to have instant access to print any and all of the resources that we are talking about today um, and any episodes in the future. And if you are not a member, you can sign up at therapyinsights.com and get instant access to everything. And if you're wanting CEU credit, you can earn CEU credit for listening to this via podcast or watching it on video. Um, you just need to have the CEU feature included in your Access Pass subscription. And then you'll go to therapyinsights.com and go to Access Pass and click on CEUs and find this episode. This is PT episode number one. And you'll just answer a couple quick questions and get a certificate of completion. Um, so I'm your host for today. My name is Megan Berg. I'm the founder of Therapy Insights. I'm actually a speech pathologist located in Western Montana. I spend most of my time on Therapy Insights, but I also do PRN at an inpatient rehab hospital um, a couple of days a week right now. And so your host is going to be Shveta Subramani, who I will introduce you to right now. Um, Shveta is a PT in Arizona, and she has an adorable daughter, and she's from Mumbai, which is a place that has been on my list of places to travel for a really, really long time. And so I can't wait until I have the chance to go visit. Um, but Shveta, tell us about yourself and your role as a PT. Hello everyone, I'm Shweta. I'm a physical therapist and currently based in Arizona. As Megan mentioned, I've been a PT for almost eight years now, and I've primarily practiced uh, with the geriatric population in skilled nursing facilities. I've also done some acute care, some rehab hospital work. The only setting that I haven't been is home health, but I currently practice in an outpatient uh, setting. I, um, it's a mix of ortho and neuro. Apart from this, I'm also actively involved with the APTA. I am the incoming chair for the Global Health uh, Special Interest Group within APTA Geriatrics and also the secretary for APTA Oncology Balance and Falls SIG because Balance and Falls is my passion. Um, other than that, I've also volunteered here and there with APTA Cardiopulmonary Section and um, also with development of <clears throat> um, some clinical practice guidelines for osteoporosis um, through APTA geriatrics. Um, so basically it's, I just, I just love volunteering for APTA and being more involved in my profession. Um, on a side note, I also like to read. I'm also a lot involved in arts in the form of music and dance. Um, so that's my passion other than physical therapy. Awesome, thank you. And then we also have Ross Eckstein with us. He is a brand new dad, just had a baby last week. Very exciting and just very grateful that you're here. And I know you're running on very little sleep. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> just tell us yeah. a little bit about your role as a PT. 
Um, so I've been a physical therapist since uh, 2016. Um, I actually graduated with Troy uh, and uh, uh, I've been working in outpatient uh, physical therapy since then. Um, I live, I, I work in a pretty rural area. So it's kind of a combination of um, it's mostly orthopedic, some cardiopulmonary and some neuro kind of sprinkled in as well, um, and occasional wound care. Um, but, uh, my specialty is kind of more in, uh, orthopedic physical therapy. Um, I'm also registered as a musculoskeletal sonographer. And so I do some musculoskeletal ultrasound as well. Great. Thank you. And we have Troy Adam with us as well, who is a foster parent and also competes in regional curling competitions, correct? Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I guess I'll share a little bit about curling as well. But um, yeah, my name's Troy Adam. Uh, I've been a physical therapist since uh, 2016. I currently work in an outpatient setting as well, affiliated with the University of Montana. Um, so I work on campus. A lot of people think that means that I work primarily with uh, sports and ortho and students and young people, but actually I'm a board certified neurologic specialist. Um, so I treat community members in our town of Missoula, Montana. <clears throat> um, my specialty is probably spinal cord injury more than anything else. Uh, probably more than half of my caseload consists of individuals that have had injuries. Um, my other half of my job is teaching in the physical therapy program. So I teach a variety of different courses and, and uh, TA in a variety of different courses. I have students with me in the clinic um, about half of the time that I'm treating patients. So I have a lot of student interaction. Um, yeah, which is great. In my spare time tonight, actually, even I have a curling match at uh, the Glacier Ice Rink uh, where, yeah, we throw the stones down the ice and sweep and uh, um, yell at each other to sweep harder and things like that. So kind of fun. <laughs> um, yeah, get out there and try it if you haven't yet. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. So this is your PT crew for this show. And for people watching or listening, if you ever have questions, we're going to be also adding a Q&A um, section to this show. So feel free to reach out to us with any questions you have, any clinical questions related to the resources or patients you're working with, and you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. And I also just want to verbalize our disclosures really quickly since we are offering this for CEUs. Um, all of us are being paid by Therapy Insights to run this show, and we are discussing Therapy Insights products in this show. So we have a great lineup of resources um, from scar massage to neuropathic pain to e-stim for wound healing. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and pull up the visuals of the resources. So if you're watching this on a podcast, you're not going to be able to see it, but we'll do our best to describe what you're seeing as needed. Oh yeah, sorry, I got to disconnect my display. All right, can you guys see that? Okay, first resource we have up is Eastem in Wound Healing. Ross, can you tell us about this resource? Yeah, so um, I was actually inspired to uh, write this resource because I had a patient um, who I was actually seeing for 
CHF kind of cardiac rehab. And uh, he had a chronic non-healing diabetic foot ulcer as well. And he was seeing wound specialists uh, at a different clinic. And uh, it had not really healed for about a year. And so um, I was trying to think of things outside the box for him that he could start uh, using to help heal his wound. And so um, I'd remembered that we kind of touched on wound, you know, Easton for wound uh, healing in PT school, but didn't get into it too in depth. And so um, I, what I thought would be helpful for me and would probably be helpful for other clinicians who might want to use Easton for wound healing as a, um, a resource where you could look at it and you could get all the information that you needed to apply East M for wound healing if you wanted to. So um, I kind of delved into the research a little bit on um, electrical stimulation for wound healing. I didn't end up using East M with this patient for one, by the time I wrote this piece, uh, he had actually started to improve a little bit. And for another, uh, the research seems strongest for pressure ulcers. Uh, uh, you can use it for diabetic ulcers, but there was less research there that I could see. So um, it kind of goes into the uh, different types of current that you can use for uh, wound healing. Um, high voltage pulse current by far has the most uh, research behind it and uh, um, also seems to have the largest effect sizes for uh, healing wounds. And so I spent most time kind of going through the parameters for that. Um, but I touched on direct current. Uh, so your high voltage pulse current is kind of, a, it's a monophasic waveform. So it's not the same thing that we typically use with our biphasic waveform. So it actually delivers charge to the tissue. Typically it's like two twin peaks and then you get a, a break and then another two twin peaks of stim. Um, and uh, uh, the direct current is similar. It's monophasic, but it's just continuous. The disadvantage to that is you get a lot more skin irritation uh, with that. Um, you can use alternating current. There's not a lot of research there. It didn't seem to work as well. And then you can use something called degenerate wave, which uh, honestly, I've never heard of before, before doing my research on this. I don't think it's a commonly used thing. But um, for the high voltage uh, pulsed current, it kind of goes through the different parameters there um, that uh, you would most studies use. Um, and uh, uh, it kind of talks about the milliamps and uh, pulse duration frequency and treatment durations, which uh, range widely anywhere from two hours all the way up to as high as 37 hours per week. Uh, if you go through a lot of batteries, if you're doing 37 hours a week, <laughs> apparently they did that in uh, a couple of studies. Um, so um, talks about how to apply uh, the electrodes and use it. And so um, you could easily do a step-by-step kind of guide on um, east, you know, high voltage pulse current for wound healing. So um, as an example, you'd start by debriding around the wound if needed so that you could apply the electrode to a flat surface. Um, Typically you'd pack the wound with a sterile um, gauze soaked in saline to improve the connectivity. and then you apply, uh, you choose your polarity for the treatment site. So typically you want a positive polarity if you're trying to kickstart inflammation. And the idea behind that is if you have a chronic non-healing ulcer, you're trying to create that inflammatory response so your body starts to address it again. And then uh, you can use negative polarity as well, which is uh, attracts macrophages to the wound, which could be good for um, preventing infection, basically. And uh, 
different studies uh, apply it in different ways. One of the more common protocols is to start with the positive polarity, and then uh, as soon as healing stalls, switch to a negative, and then just switch back and forth as soon as it stalls. And a lot of protocols seem to have pretty good success with that. So um, you apply your uh, treatment polarity, probably the positive polarity to start. You want your uh, other electrode about at least 15 centimeters away is what most studies seem to recommend. Um, and then uh, typically your frequency is about 100 pulses per second. Your pulse duration, um, it talks about as kind of a range. So anywhere from 50 to 100 microseconds um, is pretty common. Um, and then your uh, voltage is 50 to 200 volts or 1.2 to 1.5 uh, milliamps. And then you could apply that. If you wanted to keep it simple, you could tell the patient, do this an hour a day, seven days a week, and you get your seven hours a week, which is kind of right in that evidence-based dosage for um, using the high voltage pulse current. Um, and then it talks about contraindications as well uh, for using the pulse current. So I guess that's pretty much it for that piece. Great. Thank you. And we're going to move on to the next resource, which is Understanding Inferential Current. And this was written by Troy. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here today. So, yeah, I find that, honestly, electrical stimulation is... Uh, is confusing. It's hard to understand. It's not very tangible. Um, you know, it's not something that we can touch uh, very easily. So, so understanding it is challenging for students. I think it's challenging for clinicians and we tend to do what we're most comfortable with as clinicians. So this piece is really around understanding one of the kind of main forms of electrical stimulation, which is interferential current. Um, the other you know, the other ones being neuromuscular electrical stimulation, uh, functional electrical stimulation, TENS, um, those would be kind of, and then, and then like Ross said, you know, using high, high volt current for, for wound healing, <clears throat> this is meant to modulate pain. So as we talk about interferential current, it is one of the more odd setups. Most of the time when we have, um, when we're doing electrical stimulation, we use two electrodes, right? So that current is flowing from one electrode ultimately through the other, going through our muscular tissue, through our nerves uh, to elicit contraction or sensation of some kind. In this case, we actually use four electrodes. And what we what we have happen is, uh, you know, it's like a square, right? Or a rectangle type treatment area. You have one corner, um, is hooked up to one line and then the opposite corner. So kind of kitty corner is hooked up to the other um, uh, piece of that, of that um, circuit, I guess. Right. And then we have another line, right. That's traveling from one, from the opposite two corners. So we have this X type pattern of current flow. Now, what happens with interferential current is, right, like Ross said, you know, there's there's uh, bipolar waves, right, meaning there's positive and negative um, polarity as these things uh, travel through. In IFC or interferential current, we have alternating current, so it's biphasic in nature. Same thing that you get when you plug into the into the wall at your house. And what they do here is they take one current, which is called our carrier frequency. Um, it's often pretty high, you know, probably somewhere between 2000 Hertz and 4000 Hertz. Evidence says doesn't really matter. Just 
just AC current is generally uh, quite high. Then you have what's called your um, your beat frequency. Now this is something that you can actually change on your on your on your unit. So when you're using this, often it's on like a uh, you know uh, a line powered unit that plugs into the wall. You know they're the expensive ones that you see in the clinic that some clinicians use a lot and some don't use at all. <clears throat> but you plug this in and the the current uh, or the beat frequency is set to be somewhere between 100 hertz and one hertz different from that carrier frequency. And what you see on our form here is uh, a little bit of an image that shows how these two alternating currents are out of sync. Now, as these are crisp, as these currents are crisscrossing um, over the top of each other, what happens is sometimes we get the, the positive phase of that waveform um, adding to another positive waveform and creating this, this very significant waveform. And other times we have a positive aligning well with a negative and you get ultimately not a lot of, uh, of current flow through at that time. So it, what it does is it, it's meant to modulate pain, right? In the same way that we you know, rub our knee or uh, apply pressure to something that that's hurt. And um, this is meant to maybe decrease our habituation or our awareness of, um, of that pain by kind of constantly going up and down and up and down and changing a little bit um, with this kind of tingling type sensation that you might experience with electrical stimulation. Now that's that's the main way IFC is used. You can use it with uh, for like uh, um, uh, NMES as well. So for a muscular contraction, it's not done as often. Most people will just use a Russian or uh, a biphasic current um, uh, as opposed to this, you know, four uh, quadrupolar type um, uh, setup. The advantages to IFC over traditional TENS would be you can treat a larger treatment area because we've got this big rectangle, this big box of treatment. Um, it's high volt current, which there's some evidence that suggests that the um, there's less impedance through the skin and through the um, uh, uh, through the subcutaneous fat um, tissue there. So there's potential that you just may be able to get a little bit of a higher dose at these high volt um, currents. Um, it also lets you treat over bone. Uh, that's where I find I use it more often than not. If you put tens over bone or NMES over bone, it hurts. Um, it's often painful. So this just allows you to not place those electrodes directly over superficial bone. So I think of the knee probably more than anything else. Um, if I wanted to, if I wanted to treat, uh, an area there or some sort of body part, that's not flat and, and simple, right? An elbow would be another good example, a shoulder, um, low back, if I want to treat a big area. On this resource, um, I'll, I'll quick uh, wrap this up, but um, there's a couple kind of words that are going to pop up when you plug in your unit and you're selecting your parameters, right? I told you, don't worry about your carrier frequency, worry about your beat frequency, set it between one and 100 is in general a pretty good idea. There's going to be something often called sweep. Now, this is uh, it's something that you can select on or off. What it does is it changes that carrier frequency, just pre-programmed. So it's thought that maybe it even decreases habituation to the uh, stimulation even a little bit more. 
The other one that you can do is called vector scan. Um, you'll see these on a lot of the Chattanooga line powered units. What that does is it alternates the amplitude of the two currents. Um, so we haven't really talked about amplitude too much, but it changes the amplitude, which ultimately will change the location at which the summation of these two currents um, happens. So what you'll hear it described as is often like a swirl, like it will feel not only like this quick beats and slow beats, but then it will also kind of swirl around the location of the treatment area. Again, evidence for that over uh, you know traditional IFC is, is pretty uh, minimal, um, suggesting that that's important, but it might be something that patients uh, would tolerate or enjoy a little bit more, might allow you to treat a wider area of pain, but obviously with a little bit less kind of treatment density at that specific location. So um, a great resource. I hope that uh, I hope that you guys can use it in um, yeah in in the clinic or educate patients on it if they're a little bit more interested about it or other clinicians because yeah we don't do things that we don't know about so hopefully this kind of breaks down that barrier a bit. Great, thank you, Troy. And Ross, you wrote an article snapshot this month um, about what patients would call tennis elbow, also known as lateral epicondylitis, if I'm saying that correctly. Do you want to yeah. talk about some of the clinical takeaways with that as related to Easton? Yeah, yeah. So um, the high voltage pulse currents uh, that we were talking about with wound care, it's interesting. There's some research. Most of it's actually coming out of Spain. Um, and it's very common over there, but essentially it's called percutaneous electrolysis, but essentially um, they, using ultrasound, will identify the degenerated part of the tendon, put a needle into it, and then run high voltage pulse current. The same idea where you're kind of kickstarting that inflammatory process to turn a chronic non-healing um, issue into um, a healing-ish, uh, you know, more of an acute injury that the body will address. And... Um, there's some, there's kind of moderate evidence, I'd say, that there can be some benefit to it. Uh, the study that I talked about was comparing that to muscular dry needling. Um, and uh, one group had kind of just regular muscular dry needling to the supinator and the ext extensor carpi radialis brevis. And then the other group had the uh, percutaneous electrolysis targeting the tendon. And uh, the percutaneous electrolysis group had a much larger um, uh, I, I think they defined three-month clinical success as 50% improvement in symptoms, and uh, I think th that 93% um, of the people in the percutaneous electrolysis group uh, achieved that at three months, whereas in the dry needling group, it was only like 40% or something like that. And so it's uh, so something that's kind of interesting to me. I did reach out to the... Uh, company that makes these specialized electrical units that are used for percutaneous electrolysis, and they currently do not have a FDA approval in the United States, unfortunately. Um, but uh, it's something that, uh, you know, since high voltage pulse current, you know, electrical stim is in our uh, scope of practice, e-stim is too, so I, I don't see why you couldn't apply it so long as uh, you got the right needles, because I think that the needles that they use uh, apply the stem directly at the tip of the needle rather than all along the needle. Cause then you'd be applying stem, you know, to the muscle and fat and everything that you're going through towards the tendon. Um, but I just thought it was thought provoking as a, a different treatment modality for tendinopathy and something that, uh, 
Uh, maybe we'll see eventually kind of catch on here in the States. Uh, and again, it's it's common in Europe, but um, maybe eventually see more of that here. Great, thank you. Quick question, Ross. You so since you mentioned that it like it is still within our scope of practice, but wouldn't dry needling uh, need us to be certified? And it's a whole another thing as far as you know state practice acts are concerned. So like, sorry, I just was a little confused. Yeah, yeah, it can vary by your state, and of course, you want to check your you know your local state. Um, guide, you know, guidelines. Uh, I think there are still maybe a couple states where you can't, um, like maybe Washington, I can't remember for sure, but in most states, you know, in Montana, I know that we can. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's something that you'd want to make sure you uh, check with your local uh, practice act and make sure that you can do that. So you would still need to be dry needling certified to use that kind of Basically in Montana, you just need uh, training in dry needling. You don't need like a certification to do it. All right, we'll move on to our third resource for this month, which is Nutritional Supplements and Strategies for Neuropathic Pain. And Ross, this is back to you. Okay, so um, I was inspired by this piece. I, I um, get a lot of patients who are referred for uh, something else, but then have comorbid uh, peripheral neuropathy, and that's um, very common in our practice. Uh, and um, a lot of times it can be frustrating because there's nothing, you know, a lot of times it feels like there's not a lot to offer for these patients, you know, they complain about it when they're walking, but, um, you know, it's not something that you can exercise away and there's nothing that's really curative either. You know, they, they commonly get gabapentin stuff like that. But, um, and so uh, I'd read a little bit about nutrition and how it could potentially be helpful with some studies actually finding uh, with anti-inflammatory diets, actually kind of similar results compared to gabapentin. So it's something that's natural that could be recommended uh, is great. Um, it's not really meant to be prescriptive. And again, you kind of have to look at your state practice act. Some state practice acts are, you're completely unlimited. You can give as much nutrition advice as you want. And other ones like Montana, we have to be more careful. Um, so it's something that you could just give your patients, they could look it over, maybe it could get them thinking. And then depending on your state practice act, they could either uh, uh, talk to you about it, or you could start the conversation about maybe we should talk to, uh, getting you in to see a dietitian. Um, so it goes over, um, some of the, uh, um, kind of what neuropathic pain is talks about how it can be, you know, radiculopathy or people, uh, commonly think of it as sciatica, um, peripheral neuro neuropathy or, um, or disorders in the central nervous system, things like spinal cord injuries as well. Sometimes they will deal with the uh, neuropathic pain and uh, talks about how inflammation kind of contributes to neuropathic pain in most cases um, and how uh, kind of discusses some uh, studies uh, finding that uh, uh, neuropathic pain uh, can um, be helped with diet uh, and uh, talks about, you know, there's one trial uh, looking at people, uh, I think it was, yeah, spinal cord injuries for 12 weeks and having comparable benefit about a 39% decrease in sensory neuropathic pain scores, uh, which is, uh, actually just as good, or maybe even better than gabapentin, which depending on the study ranges from like 21 to 40%. Um, and then mm -hmm. talks about, you know, different types of diets that you can look into like whole food, plant diets and Mediterranean are probably the two more commonly studied um, and 
um, talks about how food intolerances can play into things. And then I touch on supplements a little bit. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids are probably the ones I like the most because we know they're good for you anyway. And uh, there's some evidence that they can actually reduce the risk of developing peripheral neuropathy to begin with. And so um, that could also be a good option for people. Um, and then it discusses a couple other uh, supplements. And again, I, I wouldn't do this as something where you give it to the person and say, do all this. I'd say, these are some things that we can think about and talk about um, at a follow-up visit, uh, maybe. Um, and so a way that you could maybe come up with a goal with your patient, you know, if you were trying to um, implement uh, some nutritional strategies into their plan of care, I think one way that would be pretty safe, I know that we had a dietitian come to our um, school when I was in physical therapy school and kind of talk about when it's okay to discuss nutrition versus not discuss nutrition as a physical therapist. And she said, it's typically okay to recommend things that are in um, uh, practice guidelines from governmental organizations, such as like the American Heart Association. So one example of a goal that uh, I might use would be in order to decrease pain by two out of 10 on a numeric pain rating scale, um, patient will increase their fruit and vegetable consumption to at least five servings per day uh, over a weekly period as assessed by a food diary within six weeks or something like that. So it's something where um, that's what the American Heart Association recommends is a minimum of five servings of fruit and vegetables. And uh, honestly, we probably all should be getting more than that, but that would be more achievable probably for, for most people. So, um, so I think that could be a good example of a goal, or you could say something like, um, again, the American Heart Association recommends uh, less than 36 grams of added sugar for men, less than 20 or 25 for women, something like that. So that could be another goal. You could similar verbiage, but just say, you know, try to limit your added sugar intake to less than 36 grams per day. And uh, again, you know, it's good for the patient and might have some benefit with their pain level as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, just the the results alone that changing the diet is comparable to gabapentin is amazing because gabapentin isn't, I mean, it works, but it's not a great long-term. Right. Solution. Yeah. Anything you can do to avoid drugs I see is a good thing. And it's not like telling someone to eat more fruits and vegetables is going to be bad for them probably. So yeah. yeah. Great. I actually found this resource quite interesting. Um, sorry, not to interrupt you guys, but um, I do have a question with the Charcot Marie, and I was curious if something like this would be helpful for her. I mean, I know that's, I mean, it's not as common. I mean, the neuropathy in that condition might be a little different compared to what you might see in diabetes or something like that, but like, yeah, you know, I didn't neuropathic pain. I was wondering if, you know, maybe trying something out like this. Could yeah, be you know, I didn't, I didn't see any research specifically for that. But, um, you know, if there's neuropathic contributors to that, it would make sense, you know, it seemed like uh, the results were good, you know, when you're looking at either chemotherapy induced neuropathy, diabetic induced neuropathy, spinal cord, you know, all these different types of neuropathic pain seem to benefit. And so I wouldn't see why not. Um, and again, it's not gonna, it's probably not gonna hurt the patient to do some of that stuff. So um, yeah, that's a good question. But I, I guess uh, my answer is I'm not completely sure, but I think probably it would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, it wasn't meant to be like a question. No, that's all right. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's a question. That would be helpful because that is something that my patient keeps complaining of too. 
So just yeah. maybe try this and see if it works or not. Like either way, like you said, it's not really going to cause any harm, but there is yeah. harm in trying. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for anyone working in a facility, like at a hospital yeah. or sniff or something like that, um, <clears throat> like I've asked the dietitian to join me for a session and that's always worked really well because then you can have their expertise, but then also bring in, you know, the clinical expertise as well. So one idea to consider. All right. On to our fourth resource, all about what is frontotemporal dementia. And this was written by Troy. Yeah, great. I just got a quick pause and say just how awesome this has been already so far. I'm so excited for us and for you that are listening. Like, man, to just just listen to Ross uh, uh, talk about some of these resources just gets me excited about like <laughs> yeah, treating patients with with some of this, some of these impairments. So I hope that you guys find this, uh, yeah, find this helpful and, and useful. Um, I know that I already am. So uh, it's been great. Um, but yeah, let's move on. So frontal temporal dementia. Um, yeah, so this is a form of dementia, um, not necessarily something to get uh, excited about, a challenging diagnosis for sure. Um, the, really, the handout is meant to be probably a resource both for clinicians in terms of kind of a basic understanding of what frontotemporal dementia is. When I, when I see that written in a chart, right, I, I, I think I would be maybe a little intimidated at first if I hadn't encountered that before. It just sounds, um, sounds a little intense. Um, so ideally, right, to give you a little bit, uh, you know, get your feet underneath you in terms of some basic understanding so that you can uh, have a good conversation with your patient that, uh, that might have been diagnosed with this. Also, I see it as a resource for someone that, um, you know, maybe a caregiver that has, uh, has some more questions um, that is probably in a place to hear some of the information that is in this. Um, it talks, you know, it talks about really the three different types um, of frontotemporal dementia. So there's, there's three variants the behavioral variant, um, the semantic variant, and the non-fluent variant. Talks about morbidity associated with these as well. So I, I, I mean, it's a heavy, it's a heavy topic. It's a heavy conversation. I don't know that it's something that I would just say, oh, here, you know, let me give you this resource on, on the way out the door. Um, this, is, this is one that I maybe want to sit down and have a conversation uh, with, with the caregiver um, or or, or potentially the, the client at that point as well. Um, frontal temporal dementia, right? It affects two lobes primarily of the brain, the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. On the sheet, we have the frontal lobe um, identified. You guys know this, I'm sure, but right, this is executive functioning type things, um, more, you know, higher order thinking. Um, and then we have uh, effects in the temporal lobe as well. Um, this can be, we can see some signs of aphasia with this, uh, Warnicke's area, if you guys are, if you remember that is located in the back of, uh, of the, um, temporal lobe, Broca's area, um, uh, close to the frontal lobe as well. Um, so language things can be, um, impaired with this. It's a progressive central nervous system disorder. Um, in fact, I was just reading, there's a, 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 a recent famous actor that was just diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. I just saw that in the headlines just this week. 
um, where they, I think initially they had thought that this individual had, um, yeah, some signs of aphasia is what it sounded like more than anything else. And now this, this diagnosis has, has come out. Um, the behavioral variant, we talked about those three variants. That's the most common variant. Um, it's also got a pretty high morbidity rate, uh, as well. Um, but this is a tough one. So it changes the way people, their personalities, the, the way they act, uh, personal experiences with patients, you know, spouses that have thought, you know, my first indication was I thought my spouse was cheating on me. They were just acting weird. They were, uh, you know, hiding or, you know, skirting questions and things like that. And then come to find out through further and more testing that, uh, that they have this diagnosis of frontal temporal dementia presents like a central nervous system <clears throat> injury or disorder. So there's, you know, uh, effects vary widely. Um, the behavioral variant is often associated with also musculoskeletal impairments as well. So this might be somebody with um, a lot of central nervous system signs. So probably a clonus response, uh, potentially spasticity or rigidity uh, in some of the limbs that wouldn't be un uncommon. In fact, I think of a patient uh, you know, um, they had the behavioral variant and, uh, couldn't, couldn't vocalize at this point by the time that I had, um, had seen them, but just simply laying my hand on their thigh, you know, in, in a kind of confirmatory way would elicit a reflexive response, um, like a quick stretch type response. So, um, really significant, um, central nervous system, uh, uh damage in that case. Um, let's see the semantic variant, uh, often less musculoskeletal impairments. So ADLs they can do for often a lot longer, but they often have behavioral changes that are associated with more rigidity. So, uh, like things being on time, not being flexible with schedules or, or things like that. And then the non-fluent variant, as you might expect, has to do with uh, with aphasias. So we mentioned those, you know, areas of kind of speech interpretation and production. Um, uh, those can obviously be impaired. Um, memory is often impaired with these. So, you know, recognizing loved ones, um, things of that nature uh, is often affected as well. So, yeah, uh, there's also just some information on the sheet in terms of um, how often this occurs. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And I think, um, therapists, whether speech, occupational or physical therapists are often the ones to first see signs of dementia, especially if somebody's admitting to a facility for a fall with some sort of orthopedic issue or some other thing going on. And maybe they don't have a diagnosis of dementia yet. We can be the first ones that might make that referral to investigate that. Or people might be coming in for physical therapy, bringing a loved one in who has frontotemporal dementia. Maybe they have the diagnosis, but just because of the way the medical system is set up right now, they don't have a lot of support or information about what that diagnosis is. So again, I think we can play a role in continuing to provide education and support there. Yeah, I think Megan, you bring up a great point too, in the sense that, you know, this is this is 
this is a patient that's going to be seen by all three disciplines. You know, there, there are some cases in here of some things that we've talked about, um, you know, that, that aren't necessarily applicable to, um, to all disciplines of rehabilitation. But I think this is one, this handout is one that um, would really benefit um, anybody that's, that's working with anyone with a, with a, a, they could come in, like you say, for anything. um, And we could be picking up on this, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I was curious to know if you uh, noticed any um, research about specific age groups that it's more commonly found in, or if early onset dementia can also be frontotemporal? Yeah, you know, I don't know incidence rates um, off the top of my head, but I do know that this is something that can affect a younger population as well. Um, so, so not necessarily um, uh, specific to, you know, um, geriatric physical therapy by any means. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, we'll move on to the <laughs> final resource, the final new resource being added to the library. And this is all about scar massage as a home program. And Troy, take it away. Yeah, I'm back up. Um, yeah, great. So Scars are something that we encounter a lot or wounds. So this resource is really meant to um, kind of lay the foundation for, you know, maybe you have somebody come in post-op. Um, you know, the classic example that I think of is, is probably someone after a total knee replacement. Um, let's say they're, you know, two weeks, and they're just starting to get their stitches out ideally, or they're, um, yeah, uh, uh, kind of removing um, whatever, you know, maybe they've got stereo strips on or something along those lines. That's about the time to start thinking about this scar massage. Now, manual therapy is a, uh, you know, it's a hot topic in PT, probably. Um, evidence is variable, um, despite the fact that uh, I think a lot of uh, physical therapists use a lot of manual therapy. I won't talk about that necessarily, but scar massage specifically has great evidence in terms of uh, improving range of motion um, associated with, uh, um, with, with a surgery. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be surgical, but that's often, that's often what we're seeing here. So, so right. My patient comes in, um, Ideally, the first thing that I'm going to look for is, all right, what type of, you know, uh, kind of skin fixation do you have on here? If there's, if there's still, you know, staples or stitches, you're probably pushing the limits in terms of if it's appropriate to start scar massage. Now, as soon as they get those out, I would even be willing to say when they still have steri strips on, if that's closed, I think you could start some gentle um, scar massage. Uh in, in the image, there's, um, you know, there's a variety of different kind of uh, pictures of, of kind of techniques or, or things like that. In those early stages, what I would say it would be best would be, you know, to use two separate fingers, compress longitudinally along the, the, um, the kind of the long axis of that scar, so that you're trying to avoid any sort of dehiscence or, or things like that. And then, and then mobilize that in, in any direction, honestly, um, you know, you can do a, a, a fascial assessment to some degree to see, okay, is how much, how much motion do I have superiorly or inferiorly or medial or, and lateral, um, to try to try to find, um, 
ideally where there's maybe a little more adhesion and just work in that direction. Uh, but ultimately any direction is, is appropriate. That's how I would start out um, with that compression. I think over time, as you're fully confident that there's no risk of, of dehiscence, which is, you know, um, obviously that's right with that, that wound were to open back up, but you know, no bleeding after no signs of, uh, of, you know, you impeding tissue healing, um, you can move to more aggressive methods. Um, so this might be things like, um, skin rolling, uh, which is a myofascial technique where, um, more or less you're pinching, you're pinching the skin and, um, and kind of, uh, pulling, pulling the underlying fascia and subcutaneous fat up, um, to, the, the goal here is to just reorganize collagen fibers, right? So after an injury, collagen is laid down um, and it's in a web, right? It's this, this uh, non-uniform, non-pigmented um, mass of, of tissue. Um, your goal with scar massage is to help, I mean, honestly, break some of those adhesions apart potentially and, and work to reorganize um, this structure. Uh, or, or that scar so that it's more um, malleable and elastic, which can, which can often lead to um, decreased risk of either pain associated with that or range of motion deficits that are, that are fascial. Um, yeah. Fascial in nature. Often I hear patients ask me about, you know, can they, they use lotion or things like that? Absolutely. But I would say after you're, you're fully confident that there, there's no uh, risk of infection with that. So, um, you know, maybe a month or so uh, would be a, a good time to start, you know, using a, a vitamin E oil or, or something along those lines, um, multiple times a day, multiple times a week. And really the earlier, the better this has gotten out, you know, multiple months uh, probably not near, uh, no, definitely not near as, um, effective as if this was done, uh, soon after, uh, after surgery or after injury. Great. And what I like about this handout is it's very easy to read. There's clear illustrations for how people can do this at home. Um, yeah, I think it's a great accessible resource that you could hand to someone at the end of a session and they could take home with them and be able to do it themselves, which is great. Totally, right? It's not rocket science stuff. It's 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 important for you to know that this works, that it's effective, that it's something you should be doing. Something that I would definitely not, I would probably wouldn't feel comfortable just handing them the resource without having done it in the clinic once or twice. But this isn't something that often you know, unless, unless you are really concerned about some, some other risks, this is something that, that I would feel comfortable handing off to my patient in terms of their treatment and say, all right, this is on you now. I've shown you how to do this. Maybe we'll advance. Maybe I'll show them some skin rolling techniques or something like that later on down the road. Uh, but this is something that I'd, I'd feel comfortable um, educating my patient on, or again, a caregiver on potentially uh, to be implemented as a home program. So a great resource for them to come back to and say, wait, how was I supposed to do this again? What was this about? Uh, yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay. We're going to move on to our case study. So these case studies are a chance for us to have conversations about clinical ideas and perspectives. I think we all have different ways to approach challenges and problems. And then we also will be talking about resources that we would pull from the Access Pass library 
um, that we could use to apply to this case study. So this month, we're talking about a 65-year-old male with a total knee replacement who lives with his son in an apartment on the second level with no elevator access. He has to navigate two flights of stairs to get to appointments. His son works during the day, so the patient is alone during the day with very limited support. So what we're going to do is just kind of go around the table and everyone's going to talk about a resource that they would use from the Access Pass Library, and then also any thoughts or perspectives as to how you would approach this case study. And Shveta, was this the resource that you selected? Is that right? Yeah, uh, the case study was kind of loosely based on a patient that I was seeing, and this was the issue with the patient, like, um, Right after surgery, this patient did not have any access to home health. Apparently, their insurance covers no home health, and the surgeon was very comfortable with the patient going up and down stairs right away after surgery, right after they were discharged from acute care to get to outpatient appointments. So I was, it was quite interesting because usually, like you see, that they uh, discharge patients with either a home health referral, depending on their how they're doing or you know like if they are in a ground level apartment or a ground level house and it's easier for them to get to appointments they can even make it to outpatient physical therapy but anyway um so this patient had to do like go up and down stairs any which way because he has to get to outpatient people appointments so i felt comfortable giving the navigating stairs with the assistive device a resource to this patient so it's easier for them to understand because if he has to go up and down the two flights of stairs multiple times in a day, he's going to need to understand early on how to navigate stairs the right way. Because with that kind of excruciating pain right after any replacement, it's harder to do stairs. But if like if your situation is such that you have to, and if your surgeon feels he's comfortable with that, then doing it the right way for that. Yeah, and this handout, like you said, it's called Navigating Stairs with an Assistive Device, and it provides basically step-by-step -step instructions for how to do it safely. And I think in this scenario, it would work well, too, for his son to have access to this if the son's not present for, like, initial PT sessions for, for caregiver training. Um, so, yeah, easy to read, easy to access. All right. The next resource I believe that Ross picked out is how to squat with good technique. Ross, yeah, so um, yeah, uh, typically after a total knee replacement, uh, especially when you're talking about stairs, the three things that are most important are good technique, as uh, Shveta talked about, and then um, having a, the range of motion to do it, and then also having the quad strength to do it. And so this kind of addresses the quad strength aspect of, uh, of that. And so um, a squat is something that we commonly prescribe to people, especially early on after a total knee, just because a lot of times they can't tolerate a lot of, uh, higher intensity exercises, at least right away. And so the squat's nice because you can, uh, um, load it, you know, uh, they can put as much weight through the leg as they can take. And, uh, and you can kind of tweak the technique, uh, based on how much you want to load the quad. Um, so this, uh, handout just kind of goes through, um, uh, how to squat with good technique, um, either a quarter squat, which is probably what you'd start with, 
and then talking about how to you would probably you, you wouldn't do the full squat but you'd start with probably a quarter squat and you it kind of goes through um uh, how to do that with good technique you'd be surprised how often you get someone doing something in the clinic it looks great and then the next time you come in you ask them to do something and it's it's pretty wonky so um so this could be something nice that they could look at at home um and you could also write your sets reps and uh um, how often you want to do it on there so it's kind of convenient that uh, um it also uh saves you some time that you don't have to go run into the office get on your home exercise software and try to type something up if you're giving them this you can just uh, talk through how to do the squat. Um, some of it may not be applicable, you know, the talks about using a barbell. Um, but, uh, again, you know, you could talk through the parts that are applicable to this patient, um, and then, uh, prescribe your sets reps and, uh, send them home with it. And so it's, it's a simple resource, but it's, uh, really, uh, practical and, uh, very applicable for this uh, type of patient. Great. Thank you. And the last resource that we're pulling from the library to use for this case study is called Stiffness After Total Knee Replacement. And Troy, why did you pick this resource? Yeah, great. Um, honestly, this is this one's not a necessarily a simple resource. This one is rich, I think, with, uh, with great information. Um, probably best suited for maybe the clinician or, again, the, the really interested and... Um, the, you know, the patient that wants to be well informed um, of some risks associated with, uh, with the total knee replacement. Um, so, right, this document talks about more or less stiffness or range of motion deficits, which are super common after uh, a total knee injury. If somebody's not going to do well after a total knee injury, it would be my guess that this is, this is the reason why lack of range of motion is, is one of the biggest reasons why we would say, you know, hey, you got to go back, you got to get a revision or, or something's got to uh, got to change here. So it outlines range of motion kind of goals uh, associated with different activities that are important to your patient. So ideally, right, we often think of about 110 degrees of flexion as something that's good. Um, but, you know, what do you need to be able to just sit comfortably? What do you need to be able to climb stairs, things like that, uh, so that you have some benchmarks, maybe when it com comes to goal writing specifically, um, or again, education to your patient. Hey, you want to be able to get down uh, to the basement to be able to do your laundry? Well, guess what? We got to work on this um, and we got to get it to this, uh, this point. Um, it talks a little bit about treatment options for the physical therapist as well that's having trouble um, uh, improving range of motion. Um, yeah, and uh, some risk factors associated with not having uh, or, or with potential to kind of develop a stiff, uh, a stiff knee or stiffness after surgery. So uh, just a good, a good kind of uh, a base piece of uh, literature to give to your patient right off the get-go, get them excited about uh, about their range of motion. Hey, great, you know, you were able to achieve 70 degrees of, of uh, flexion today. Oh, great, now you're able to achieve 90 degrees of flexion. This is what this means. Um, so they, maybe they can have a little bit of buy-in and kind of follow along um, with the treatment process, so. Great, thank you. Um, and do you guys, have any thoughts as far as how you would counsel this person? Like, should they be going home? Should they be going out and doing things in the community right after a total knee replacement? If they're going to do it anyway, even against somebody's advice, like how would you be talking to them or counsel them through this? I think it would depend for me a lot on their functional status, you know, and how they were doing. Um, 
And then also sometimes uh, compliance with your uh, assistive device instructions as well can play into that. You know, a lot of times people can get around pretty good and do more walking if they are willing to use a walker or something to unweight it a little bit. And then a lot of times the people that insist, oh, I'm not using a walker and they're just grunting and limping through pain, uh, then they end up with a really swollen, angry knee. And so um, I guess it depends, I guess, depending on how how the patient presented and uh, um, and how the knee was doing, I guess would be, uh, a lot of times I talk about pacing, you know, it's like, uh, um, you know, maybe if you got really sore, um, you know, walking 500 feet next time, try maybe just limiting yourself a little bit more and see, see how you do and then kind of gauge it on that and hopefully progress it with time. Yeah. I, I love and hate Ross's answer, which is like the classic PT school. Everybody knows it. Uh, and I'm sure other professions as well, uh, other therapies that it depends answer. Right. Um, so yeah, you got to use your clinical judgment. You got to see Okay, what's what's their fall risk? How good are they with their assistive device? What's their pain level? Things like that. In general, we're going to push towards uh, towards as much community involvement as we can. Classically, people do better with that. But uh, uh, if it's not safe, it's not safe. Honestly, um, other than what both of you mentioned, I would say that um, I actually learned something very interesting recently, which was motivational interviewing. I feel that when I get patients who are like, very non-compliant, very persistent, that they're going to be unsafe, that they still want to get the rehab that they deserve. I try, like, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in motivational interviewing. That's something that I'm still looking into, but I feel like um, I've tried a little bit applying the strategies, the ones that I know of, at least trying to, like, question them further about, like, okay, why is that if they're denying using an assistive device, why is that they feel that way? what are the pros and cons, what would happen and kind of weigh the risk versus benefits for them and see if they're able to make an informed decision at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, it's it's always personal choice. And I think all we can do is recommend and be supportive, but then also honor that it's the choice that they get to make for their own lives. And that's hundred percent okay. All right. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention each month we'll mention any resources that were created by the other teams in Therapy Insights that might apply to your clinical practice. So this was the resource created by the OT team that's now available, and it's all about gate control theory of pain in practice. Um, so that can be used as a handout for your patients. And then the OT team also developed a handout about growth mindset. So trying to um, shift from a fixed mindset of like, I can't, or I give up towards a growth mindset of I'm still learning, I'll keep trying, this is going to take time and effort. Um, so that can be a helpful conversation if you're working with patients who tend to live in that fixed mindset realm, helping them shift that so they're able to reach the goals that they're trying to accomplish. Um, yeah, so those are all of our resources. You can find them at therapyinsights.com. All of the links to the resources that we're talking about will be in the show notes if you wanna just find them very quickly. And if you have any questions, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. Um, thank you for joining us for this last hour. We're going to be back in one month 
with a whole new episode all about our new resources that we're releasing in April. And we'll have a new case study that we'll be discussing then as well. Um, and if you are an Access Pass member, be sure to vote in our upcoming survey about which resources that we create next. We absolutely listen to all requests as well. If you're looking for a specific resource that you need for your clinical practice, um, you can type that into the survey and we take those and those are often the resources that we create next. So thank you to all the therapists out there for making therapy informed and empowering and person-centered. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed it.